Welcome to another inspirational podcast from Junction 28 Church. We're so glad that you've decided to join us today and know that God wants to bless you with this message. We'd love to hear about it, so why not tell us on our Facebook or Twitter pages? If you would like further information about who we are, check out our website www.thejunction28church.com We hope you enjoy this message. Well, I am beyond honored to be with you tonight. I cannot tell you how humbled I am that you would allow me to minister the word of God to you. You know, I, I say this with all sincerity, and I mean this before the Lord. If I could for the rest of my life, I would preach for free. I, I just, there's something in my heart that hates charging people to hear the gospel. I, it's not me, but I am so grateful that you would take the opportunity to sow into my life. So I want to thank you, Pastor Nathan. I, I want to honor you while I'm here and thank you for that. It, I want to tell you tonight what you're sown into. Can I, can I do that? Can I take a moment to share with you what my vision is? Okay, thank you, Nathan. <laughs> Does anybody else want to know apart from Nathan tonight? Okay. On the 1st of September 2010, I was in a meeting with a well-known evangelist and I'm not somebody often who goes out to altar calls. That's, that's just something I did. I mean, I've been raised in the Christian church all of my life. You know, I've, I've been to more altar calls than, than I know what to do with. But I, I felt impressed by the Lord when this evangelist opened up the altar for people to go down there to be prayed for. I felt the Lord nudge me and say, go down there. So when I was down there at the, at the altar, just a simple place like this, a much bigger room than this, but just something as simple as this. The man of God prayed for me and I was, I was laid on the floor and the Lord spoke. How many know those times when the Lord speaks to you that people say, how do you know it was the Lord? And you're like, you'll know if it was the Lord. How many know what I'm on about? Those times when it's undeniable that it goes not just to here, but it grips the depths of your heart that you see, I knew it was the Lord. How many know what I'm talking about? Those times when you cannot deny if you wanted to. The Lord spoke to me, and this is oftentimes where I, I lose 90% of the congregation, but I'm not here for you to believe me. This is what the Lord spoke to me. He said, son, I want you to believe me for one billion souls. Now, that's usually the reaction I get from that, so that's, that's not new to me. But the Lord says, son, believe me for one billion souls. Now, you know it's the Lord because that's the stupid thing to believe for in your own mind. And I began to reason with the Lord as to why this couldn't happen when he just told me it could. Because oftentimes we know better than the Lord, right? And I started to give the Lord every reason why this couldn't happen. And the Lord spoke two words to me. He said, son, only believe. Now I've had more people tell me this can't happen than it can. But oftentimes I find this. The only reason someone will tell you is that that can't happen is because they don't want to believe for something like that. So if my faith can't reach that level, I'll try and pull you down to my level of understanding. But let me tell you something. I don't have any understanding how this is going to happen. I'm simply a young preacher who believes that this book is true today. And if God said to me, believe for it, then I'm just naive enough to believe for it. No man of God or woman of God who ever achieved anything in life was a safe person. I forget who said it, Pastor, you probably know, but they said, I don't want to run a re rescue mission on the, within the sound of a church bell, but I want to run a rescue mission on the very border of hell. I don't want to live comfortable. 
I want my life to invade the realm of the impossible. It's why I'm alive. I am not alive to fill a church seat. A sinner could do that. <laughs> I am alive to take this word from the private place into the public place and see what God will do when I simply believe him. People told me, John, it's stupid to pray for the sick in front of a crowd. What if they don't get healed? What if they do? You know, over the past year, I have doctor's reports to back all this up. I, have, I will never uh, testify of a miracle unless I have like official reports to back it up. But over the last year, I have seen a child's skull grow in front of me. I have seen autism healed. I've seen cerebral palsy healed. I've seen a man who was about to have a foot of his colon removed because he had diverticulitis. He went to the surgery the next day and they canceled it and said, you've got a new colon. This year, I have seen God replace discs in spines. I've seen spines grow. I've seen legs grow. I've seen everything that you could possibly imagine. I've seen deaf ears open, blind eyes open. Why? If you're foolish enough to believe this word. That Jesus said what? Lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So what happens if they don't? What happens if I pray? This is not even my sermon. I know 40 minutes, Pastor. I know, I know, I know. But what happens, Nathan, when you pray for them and they don't? Either I can find a scripture to make myself feel comfortable about that situation. Well, Jesus could do no mighty miracles in his hometown. Why are you trying to feel comfortable about it? I don't want to feel good about somebody not getting healed. I allow it to spiritually provoke me to the place where it drives me back into my prayer closet. And I say, God, either you're not powerful enough to do it, or you've got to do something in me. And I know the first one's not an option. So God, what must I do to see a breakthrough in this area of my life that people would see the miraculous and not support a ministry but bow down to the name of Jesus? My vision is not to grow a ministry. It's to expand the kingdom of God. If I die and no one remembers the name Jordan Morris, so be it. But they better know the name of Jesus. It's why I live. It's why I breathe. To see the gospel of Christ demonstrated in all the world. Can I preach you? Okay. If you have a Bible, turn in your Bible to Psalm 137. I'm going to forewarn you now, I have one volume. So if you don't like it, you can leave now if you want to. Many people ask me, Jordan, why do you shout so much when you're preaching? And I have a very simple answer for you. If you were in the middle of the ocean, on a lifeboat, and you saw somebody drowning, would you whisper to them? What would you do? You would get hold of a lifeline, you would shout to them, take hold of this lifeline, it will save your life. Yeah. What's that going to do with preaching? Everything. The word of God is the lifeline. We are the messenger. And I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed to hide it under a basket, but I will declare until the day I die, there is only one name under heaven by which you can be saved. And it is not Buddha. It is not Allah. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the son of the living God. What if you offend people? Be offended. But I'm more concerned with preaching the truth to you than lying to you and seeing you walk into hell. 
I'm not going to do that. I will not compromise a gospel for man's approval. I won't do it. I'd rather see you in heaven. You say, preacher, you're the person who offended me most. But I'm glad you did. Well, that's half of the congregation who don't like me. Okay. Psalm 137. It says these words. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to the ground. O daughter of Babylon, who ought to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served it, and happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Close your eyes, if you will, and repeat this prayer. Precious Holy Spirit. All right, let, let's try that again. Precious Holy Spirit. I ask that you would help me. Love Jesus like you do. I open my heart to be spiritually provoked. I want to know Jesus like you do, Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to preach a message to you tonight that I've entitled, I want to go home. This is a sermon that the Lord actually gave me in a dream one night. And I had a dream of myself preaching and I woke up and wrote this sermon from that dream. The backstory to what I've just read you, from some of you, you may only know that scripture from a famous pop song that was sung by a band called... Wow, Christians know that stuff. That's the only reason some of you may know that scripture. But the backstory to this scripture is this. The children of Israel have been taken captive in Babylon by a king called Nebuchadnezzar. For those of you who were there at Hope this morning, I apologize, I'm going to preach the same sermon, but you can never hear about Jesus enough. They were taken into a foreign land, and they were forced to work as slaves, and they had to confine themselves to the culture of Babylon. Let me read you something about Babylon that you may not know. Babylon had a long tradition of paganism. The Babylonians were completely intolerant of any other religion. They insisted that everyone convert to their religion. Besides idol worship, homosexuality was also rampant in Babylon, eventually becoming the norm. And Babylonian culture was also infamous for its great cruelty. In many ways, theologians suggest it resembled Sodom and Gomorrah. This was not a great place they were in. They were taken from the promised land where they had everything they needed. Their houses, their livestock, their families, and suddenly a king burns their city to the ground and takes them to Babylon. But let me read you something else about Babylon that you may not know. Babylon was a thriving society, economy, and industry. At certain points, theologians say that Babylon was the largest city in the world, and also the river Euphrates and Tigris were the major rivers in Babylon. Now, you could be forgiven to say to the children of Israel, well, actually, why don't you look at the positives? 
There's a far better economy in Babylon. There's a much better industry. There's vast plains for you to live in. You've got more chance of getting a better job. There's actually, if you look at the positives, maybe you can live here and learn to enjoy it. But why, if that's the case, do we find the children of Israel sat at the side of a river crying to the point that they say, I want to go home? What was it? I studied this text and I thought, well, it wasn't the rivers that were better in Jerusalem. It wasn't the livestock that was better in Jerusalem. In fact, everything in the natural was far better in Babylon. So what was it that could cause a great nation to sit at the side of a river and say, I want to go home? There was one thing that Jerusalem had that Babylon didn't. Do you know what that is? It was the temple that housed the presence of God. The thing that they were crying out for more than anything else was not I want my house back it wasn't I want my farm back it was this take me back to where the presence of God dwells you see this was not just a subtle surface cry it was embedded in the DNA you have to understand that these were children of Israel from generation to generation stories would have been passed down about Moses doing great exploits through the presence of God they would have heard stories like this. The God who resides in that temple, he once opened the sea and split it so they could walk through. That's not any God in there. That is a God who brought water out of a rock. That's not any God in there. That is God who rained down manna from heaven. This is not any God. This was so embedded in their DNA. They heard stories about Moses saying things like this. Lord, do not send us up from here unless your presence goes with us. Even the way they built their camp. They had a culture. Whatever mattered most to you, you put in the center of your camp. What did they do in the wilderness? They built their camp around the... I'm, I'm going to try this side. They built their camp around the what? The tabernacle. What they valued most, they put in the center of their society. Because they realized this, take my house, take my family, take my livestock, but do not take the presence of God from me. It is my life. You see, if I was to speak to some of you tonight, and this is where I'm going to start pressing some nerves, because after this I'm gone, back to America. And pastor will clean it up. You see, if I was to speak to some of you tonight, remember, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to spiritually provoke you. That's my job tonight. If I was to speak to some of you and saying, do you remember the presence of God? I would have to point to a time 10 years back in your history. To some of you, if I was to talk about the presence of God, my sentence would start like this. Do you remember? Do you remember the day you were saved and the presence of God was more real to you than the coat on your back? Do you remember those times in your prayer closet when Jesus was so real to you that those tears just rolled down your cheeks because you wanted nothing else? Do you remember when you begged for 10 more minutes in the Bible rather than just spending 10 minutes? Do you remember when that old worship song caused you to fall to your knees and worship him and now it doesn't do that for you anymore? 
Why? You've lost the presence. You have found yourself in a metaphorical Babylon where you have adapted to the culture around you rather than saying, I must go home. I need to go home. I need to go back to the place where the presence of God was everything I had. I'm going to move on. You see, for many people, one of the reasons I believe that we don't live in a place of the presence is we don't actually understand the access we have to the presence. I was once told this by a young man. He said, preacher, if I had what Moses had, maybe I would understand the presence of God. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he had the fire and the smoke and the booming voice. What if I had that? I could much easier find the presence of God. I looked at this young man. I said this. If Moses could swap what he had with us, if he could choose the Holy Spirit over his encounter, he would swap it in a second. Why? Hebrews 8 says this. Now we have a far better covenant than that which Moses did. You say, well, I want an angel to walk in my room. Why would you want that when you can have the Holy Spirit? I'm trying to press some nerves in love. Why would you settle for something less than God himself taking a residency inside of you? Why would you conform your life to a series of experiences rather than a life of relationship? Hebrews 8 says this, but now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch he is also a mediator of a what covenant? A better covenant. Everyone say better covenant. It goes on to say this, which was established on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. Do you realize in the Old Testament, not all knew him? If you weren't a priest or a select man of God, you did not know God. But God has made himself readily available for every single person, not only to be filled by him, but to know him. They will know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. You see, when Jesus came to earth, I believe the greatest role he played was establishing the relationship that God had with Adam and bringing that back to us again. Let me show you why. The Bible says it in the book of Genesis. It says that Adam walked with God in the garden. Now you have to understand something. There is a difference between being filled with God and walking with God. A big difference. I know many people who are filled with the Holy Spirit yet still live a life of sin. But to walk with God. To walk with the Holy Spirit each and every day. Saying, Holy Spirit, how do you feel about this? Holy Spirit, what shall I do about this in my life? Acknowledging the Holy Spirit in every area of your life makes you not only saved by God, but a friend of God. It says it's about Abraham. And it was accounted him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. How many know God has friends? How many know it's possible not to be a friend of God? Oh, some of you think I've just committed blasphemy. How many know God reveals more to some people than others? 
How many know God uses some people more than others? Why? If there is a history made with God, he will make history through you. What you find in the private place cannot be left in the private place. Everything that God deposits within you is eventually for the work of the kingdom. God touching your life is not just for him to touch your life. It has to go from here out there. Oh, I'm, I'm trying, church. I'm going to get through to somebody. When God touches your life, it is not to make you fall on the floor and feel good. I'm tired of people falling on the floor, and when they get up, they're not changed. Why did you fall? <laughs> the sign of a man who has walked with God is that he looks like Jesus. So Jesus comes to earth. He takes disciples, people who men would never have picked before. He turns the world upside down. And then he says this to them. Now I'm going to go. To you, that doesn't seem like a severe statement. But to disciples who have abandoned everything to walk with this man, it meant a lot. But here's what he said. If I do not go, the helper cannot come. You have to understand something. Jesus, though he was the son of God, was limited. Jesus, although he was the son of God, was limited. Jesus had to sleep. Jesus had to eat. Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Jesus had to abide by a physical body the most of the time, apart from when he's walking on water and doing things like that. But when he went, here's what he was showing them. If I stay, you've only got one of me. But if I go, the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus Without limitation. Brother, I'm glad you enjoyed, enjoyed that because no one else did. The Holy Spirit is like Jesus. Just like Jesus. But living in you and in you and in you and in you and in you. And if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. Do you know what that means, brother? It means what Jesus did, you can do. That's better preaching than what you're acting. When God tore the veil, it was God's public declaration that I will no longer confine myself behind human limitation. You see, I believe that the greatest role of the Holy Spirit is to show us the person of Jesus. Now you may say, well, evangelist, I disagree. That's fine. What do you think the greatest role is? Well, I think the greatest role of the Holy Spirit is to show us how to have miracles. Let's go with that for a second. He's here to help us have miracles. Okay, that's, that's good. Everyone in this room, we're healing the sick. We're raising the dead. We're casting out devils. We're cleansing lepers. We're doing the work of the commission. But yet none of us know the author of the miracles. If that was the only role of the Holy Spirit, you would be healing the sick, raising the dead, yet never knowing the one to point to after the miracle. Well, I disagree. I think the greatest role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the word of God to us in theology. Okay? Listen, I am all for theology. I have done multiple studies. I have gone through multiple schools of ministry. I am not bashing theology, but listen to me. If the greatest role of the Holy Spirit was to reveal theology to us, we would know the Bible back to front, but yet we don't know the one of which the word speaks of. 
All I know is information. But until the Holy Spirit breathes on information, it will never go from information to revelation. It will only stay as information. I will cramp my mind with logic and statistics, yet never know the one of whom breathed on these pages and called it a living word. I'm really trying. I really am trying. You see, this was the problem with the Pharisees. In John 5, Jesus says to them, you seek eternal, let me, I want to read this exactly to you. I don't want to misquote this. Jesus said, you search the scriptures to find eternal life, but you won't come to me that I will give you life. What were they doing? They were exalting the pages above a, of the book, above the one of whom the word spoke of. You see, you have to understand this. There are 66 books in this Bible, but this Bible is not about 66 different books. It's about one person and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the stitches that holds the fabric together. Do you think really that God put the story of Noah in the Bible to teach us how to build boats? Or was it maybe a representation of Jesus being our ark and saving us from humanity? Do you think that killing the Passover lamb in Exodus was to teach us how to butcher animals? Or was it to show us that this lamb who was slain, when you applied the blood to your home and your life, it will cover you from death? Do you think Joseph was just about Joseph? Do you know that Joseph's story is the story of Jesus? Did you know that? Can I show you? Joseph, a son loved by his father. That was Jesus in the bosom of the father. Hated by his brothers. Jesus was hated by the world. Thrown into a pit. Jesus was placed in a tomb. Thrown into prison. Jesus went down to hell to redeem the keys of death and hell. Promoted from prison to the palace. That was the ascension of Jesus. Set at the right hand of Pharaoh. That was the glorification of Jesus. Made to rule over the land. That is the dominion of Jesus. The story of Joseph is the story of Jesus. You can open any page in this Bible and you can find Jesus. You see, I'm going to make a remarkable statement to you now. Don't get offended with me. You've already prayed a prayer. Lord, provoke me. Don't condemn me. You've already prayed it. It's too late. You can't be offended with me. You chose to pray it, not me. If you take Jesus out of this Bible, you can throw the Bible away. Some of you are processing that still. So, You see, if Jesus did not raise from the dead then Noah building an ark was a futile attempt at rescuing humanity. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then Isaiah was a crazy daydreamer. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then John the Baptist was just a psycho running around in the wilderness. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then every martyr that came after Jesus was just a pointless execution. But I'm an evangelist, and that means a bringer of good news. And I've got good news for you. Because Jesus did raise from the dead, Noah did rescue humanity. Because Jesus did raise from the dead, Isaiah did see the high and lifted king. Because Jesus did raise from the dead, John the Baptist was one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Because Jesus did raise from the dead, he is now the high and exalted one, given a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. That he is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is what grieves my heart though. How long have I got left, Pastor? 
I'm just going to assume half an hour. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 20 minutes? Okay. Feel free to stop me at any point. You see, there are many today who know about him, but they don't know him. You see, I could sit you down with me, Nathan, for five minutes and tell you a lot about me. You don't know me, you know about me. When I married my wife, before I married her, I knew about her. But once you have lived with somebody and cut your heart open and bled to them, metaphorically, you begin to know each other. There begins to come a communion of two people knitted together. That suddenly I don't know facts about you, I know you as a person. You see, A.W. Tozer said this, the tragedy of the church is that from childhood to old age, men have only known a synthetic God, compounded of logic and theology, having no eyes to see or ears to hear. How many understood that? Okay, three. The tragedy of the church is that from childhood to old age, men have only known a synthetic God, compounded of logic and theology, having no eyes to see or ears to hear. What does that mean? They have known a lot of things about a God, but as a person, they don't know him. And that has led to the problem that is this. Many people love the idea of God more than the person of God. I'll show you a perfect example. Exodus 32, you read about the children of Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And Moses has gone up to the mountain and he is with the Lord. And they say these words, what has become of this man, Moses? Now that right there tells me a lot about the people. Their relationship with God was founded on the presence of the man being there. The only way that they knew God was through Moses. And as soon as Moses disappeared, so did the God of Moses. So what did they do? If he is gone and his God is gone, let's build our own God. I'm trying to get at something. And here's what they did. They built a golden calf. Why? Because they could articulate and they could customize how their God would be, how he would act, what he would be like. Would he forgive me over and over and over again? Sure, why not? Can I live in sin and he still loves me? Absolutely. What did they do? They built the golden calf on how they wanted God to be. But understand this. You cannot build a golden calf of theology and call it Jesus Christ. That's not how it works. You serve God as he is or you don't serve him at all. <laughs> I get that I've got to the awkward part of the sermon. And this itches us a little bit. But listen to me. You either serve God in his grace and mercy and also in his holiness and judgment or you don't serve him at all. You don't get to pick the God how he decides to be with you. When you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to the person of Jesus. That meant you said yes to holiness. You said yes to righteousness. You said yes to loving people you don't like. You said yes to a lot of things that unless you spend time with Jesus, you won't want to do. Is this too far? Did we overstep the boundary? You see, you cannot rely on your pastor to show you Jesus. 
It doesn't work like that. In Exodus 16, the Bible says that God would rain down manna from heaven and it came daily. But if they did not eat the manna on that day, the manna would go what? Stale and rotten. Well, what's that going to do with Jesus? Everything. If there is not a daily partaking of Jesus, your experience of him yesterday will not sustain you for today. Well, I heard a good sermon from pastor on Sunday. I should be good for the week. You're on your way to dying spiritually, my friend. You cannot survive from Sunday to Sunday on the words of your pastor. Why did Jesus say, I am the bread of life. Taste and see that he is good. What does that mean? Jesus has made himself spiritually edible to sustain you. Oh, someone help me. He has made himself literally spiritually edible that I can partake of him in my prayer closet and that gives me spiritual life. But my concern with the church is this, and this is why sometimes I believe being an evangelist is one of the hardest things because you end up feeling things about souls going to hell that other people don't. Maybe you can talk to a prophet and you talk about people going to hell and he's like, yeah, it's terrible. But inside my heart, that's not good. And that's a very simple way of putting it. There is something about watching somebody spiritually die and being completely ignorant of the consequences. When all you do is want to get hold of them and say, you need to get back in your prayer closet. You need to be with Jesus. Oh, brother, you're being legalistic. And you watch them month after month go one row at a time from back to back until they slip out of the church. Why? It started with missing one day of prayer. You see, no one backslides overnight. It is a slow process. It is a gradual lessening of the love for Jesus who first saved you. You see, I wrote this down while preparing for this sermon. Am I still good? The bridegroom is often neglected because of the bride's fascination with the world he saved us from. You see, there's a verse in the Bible that says this. It's in Revelation 3.20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, look, behold, be aware. I am stood at the door of your life and I am knocking. You see, God never kicks his way into your life. It is a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus for a fallen humanity. I stand at the door and I don't kick it down, but I knock, waiting for your permission to enter. It is that I cry out, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. What does that describe? Intimacy. You know that Jesus didn't save you just to save you? Do you know that he didn't save you just to save you because he could? But when he purchased you, it was with the intention of being intimate with you. I told you at the beginning, the plan of God was always to walk with man. There was always a plan. But my friend, am I of the absolute conviction? That every morning when I wake up, Jesus is stood on the cusp of heaven, waiting for me to open my eyes, just for me to give him my attention again. Well, how do you know that? I learned a lot about the bridegroom and the bride since I got married. I learned that if I can be so broken 
by being away from my wife for 10 days, how does Jesus feel about me being away from him? I didn't rip open my body for my wife. Jesus did for me. And the fact that I can walk out of my bed and flick on Facebook in the morning and go to work and come home and not even give him my attention makes me believe the heart of Jesus is often grieved from his bride being so absent from him. When he did everything he could to create an opportunity for intimacy. Do you realize that you can bring Jesus joy? Do you realize that by just getting up in the morning and saying, Jesus, I love you. Do you realize that his heart jumps inside of him? Married couples, do you remember the first day you got married and your wife or your husband turned to you and said, I love you, how that felt in your chest? Do you realize the depths of intensity, how much that he's escalated with Jesus? Do you realize he's a far better lover than we are? Do you realize that his heart is more grieved than ours is when we don't at least acknowledge him? See, not long ago I was at a conference in America, a huge conference. Some of the most incredible men and women of God in the faith were there ministering. And there was an experience I had with the Lord. How long have I got left? There was an experience I had. I have her permission, Pastor. There was an experience I had with the Lord that I was just so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. In the middle of this conference of about three or four thousand, I, I lay out on the floor and the Spirit of God was so real to me that my entire being was alive in the Holy Spirit. And I laid on that floor and the person of Jesus became so real to me, I felt that if I stretched out my hand, I could touch him. I've said to this already, the job of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the person of Jesus to you. I disagree. Let me show you the scripture for it. John 16, when he comes to help her, he will glorify me. The job of the Holy Spirit is this. He never glorifies himself. He's doing this. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You've got to look at Jesus. He's incredible. Why don't you love him like I love him? Let me help you love him like I love him. Look at Jesus. He's amazing. He's incredible. I love him so much. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing constantly. What about the Father? Okay. The Father's a good preacher. He has one sermon. This is my beloved son. Over and over and over at Jesus' ascension, this is my beloved son. At the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. At the baptism, this is my beloved son. So the Holy Spirit's going, look at Jesus. And the Father's going, look at Jesus. I've got a recommendation for you today. Look at Jesus. I was laid on the floor. And the person of Jesus became so real to me. I said, Jesus, what can I give you in this moment? What can I give you that will contribute to the reward of your suffering in a small way? Jesus, do you want me to sing for you? I'll sing. Tell me to stand on the chair and sing. I'll do it. Jesus, do you want me to wave a flag? I'll wave a flag. Do you want me to dance? I'll dance. There was something in my heart that said, I've got to give something to Jesus. And after I tied myself out with travailing and groaning and praying and trying to attain God's attention, 
that I said, Jesus, I don't know what you want. So all I give you now is my love and my attention. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me, Nathan. And he said, that's all I was waiting for. I must raise a point to you. Jesus did not die for your praise. Jesus did not die for your tithe. Jesus did not die for your ministry. He died for you. Now, if you grasp this, you get everything. You do not lure Jesus by your worship. We do not worship him to get him. We worship him because he's worthy. But in a response to a heart that loves him, he said, I can't help but go and be with them. Worship is not twisting his arm up his back saying, if I sing and sing praises to your name, he might come. He's not cheap. He can't be bought by a worship song. But he can be loved to the point where he said, I want to be with them. I finish with this right now. To be loved by Jesus and to love him in return is the crescendo of the Christian life. To be loved by Jesus and to love him in return is the pinnacle of the Christian life. Now some of you may say to me, preacher, this is all very simple. When are you going to expound on this? How can you expound on Jesus? He is everything. The Lord spoke this to me when I was preparing this sermon. He said, son, do not mistake simplicity for immaturity. I'm going to try that again. He said, do not mistake simplicity for immaturity. I get that some of you know the Bible better than I know my own name. But listen to me. Unless you love Jesus, it does not matter how many verses of Scripture you know. All you've memorized is words. But when you love him, those words jump out of the page and they begin to live in you. There's a verse in the Bible that says this. Not everyone on that day who says, Lord, Lord, will be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. On that day, they will say, Lord, did we not do many great works in your name? Did we not cast out devils? Did we not heal the sick? Did we not cleanse lepers and raise the dead? And it says, and Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know when the Lord told me about one billion souls? I thought the greatest crescendo of the Christian life was winning souls. It's not. Then I thought miracles. If I can raise the dead, I've hit the heights of Christendom. Then that happened. Well, I've not raised the dead. But then the miracle started flowing. And still, this thing in my heart would not lay silent. And then I found Jesus. And everything I wanted was summed up in the person of Jesus. To be loved by him and to love him in return is the Christian life. Do you know, if you have miracles but don't love Jesus, do you know what will happen eventually? Those miracles will just become a good promo video for your ministry, and it will just become pride. I've had invites to go and do crusades to 100,000 people, without exaggeration. Over 100,000 people, Jordan, come and do this crusade. I, I, I could have done it. But even in the winning of a multitude of souls, souls do not satisfy the heart. Only Jesus does. 
Heute stand hier auf Fede Fuel. The scripture says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. The greatest problem in there wasn't that they didn't work for the kingdom of God. They won souls, they healed the sick, they cast out devils. But the scripture tells me something about all of that. You can have it all. But if you don't deeply love Jesus with intimacy, you are bankrupt. You see, you may say to me, well, actually it was the lawlessness that stopped them getting into heaven. You know, sin is simply a byproduct of not knowing Jesus. If you have sat in your prayer closet and allowed the Holy Spirit to reveal the person of Jesus to you, it no longer becomes about your will to resist sin. He changes your entire motives. The more you sit with Jesus, the more you become like him. Now listen to me. I preach this everywhere I go. The prayer closet is an open invitation to come and die. If your prayer closet has been reduced to a wish list, you have missed the purpose of prayer. If the only reason you use your prayer closet is, Lord, I really need $100 for next week. I'm in England. Lord, I really need £100 next week or else I can't pay my bills. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Listen, I would have given you that anyway if you'd have just sat with me. But you missed so much that you could have had. Yes, you got the hundred pounds. But you missed the intimacy of Jesus. Sitting there with you saying, I want to pour out myself to you. Do you know when you've had Jesus, nothing else will ever do. I understand that some people, this message may be so simple it insults you. But listen, you never graduate from Jesus. Well, Jordan, we need more than just Jesus. How can you want more than everything? The Bible says that in him all things consist. How can you have more than everything? Well, Jordan, I want miracles. Get Jesus and you'll get miracles. Jordan, I want deliverance. Get Jesus and you'll get deliverance. Jordan, I need provision. Get Jesus and you'll get provision. He is the source of all things. But he is not so cheap that you can just seek his hand and he'll reveal his face to you. That's not how it works. My fear is that too many people settle for the hand of God rather than touching the heart of God. But if you touch the heart of God, you can move the hand of God. Ali, will you come and help me? I want every eye closed in this place, if you will. I want to take you back to the story of Babylon. 70 years go by and the children of Israel are still captives in a foreign land. And then comes along a king called King Cyrus. And he rescues them out of captivity and he says these words to them. Go back home to the land that you love and rebuild your temple. Evangelist, so what? That summarizes the most important thing that you can ever have. He did not say go home and build your houses. 
He did not say go home and build the walls that protect you. Why? Because if you don't have the Prince of God, you may as well die anyway. You don't mean that. Yes, I do. If your life is void of the Prince of God, you are bankrupt of all people. If you can't wake up in the morning and be greeted by the bliss of who He is, you're missing out on everything. You see, to live truly is to love Jesus. Well, how do you know that? The Bible says that He was split open. He was ripped open and what poured out of Him? blood. The Bible says it in the book of Genesis. The life is in the blood. Only by the blood of Jesus flowing out of him could you have any sort of life.